Many times there are things that uh, make us wonder in our world. Um, you know, things like, uh, I wonder why there's so much month left at the end of my money. <laughs> I always uh, get caught off guard with that, it seems like. I, I wonder why um, people who punish a child for lying will tell that same child, just tell them that I'm not home. <laughs> Um, I wonder why a speaker that they say needs no introduction gets one anyway, you know? Um, it all seems so curious to me. Um, many things in this world cause us to wonder, but one of those mysteries that makes, I think, me wonder the most is the fact that the God of this universe, the God who made the wispy clouds in the sky, the the God who made the rugged snow-capped mountains, the God who knows why he made the little tick, <laughs> um, the God who knows every star by name, this same God calls you and I his friends. I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 15 this morning. John chapter 15. Um, and I want you to listen to these powerful verses. Jesus is speaking here, and in John 15, verses 14 and 15, listen to what he says. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Did you hear that? Did you hear what Jesus was saying? He calls us his friends. Isn't that amazing? And he doesn't just call us um, acquaintance friends, okay? I mean, you know what I, what I mean when I say acquaintance friends, right? Uh, uh, acquaintance friends are someone that you know, someone you are friendly with, someone that you might even do things with once in a while. But you would never have an acquaintance friend stand up with you at a wedding. <laughs> a stand up at the, your wedding friend, that's the type of friend that Jesus calls us here in John 15. In fact, the word Jesus uses here for friend is the same word that is used in John um, Chapter 3, verse 29, uh, where it's referring to the best man at a wedding. See, we, we are, you are, uh, those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, disciples of Christ, we are more than just an acquaintance friend of, of Jesus. W Jesus calls us his intimate, close, best friends. <laughs> Did that make you wonder? Did that surprise you a bit? I mean, maybe the reason that surprises is because <laughs> if you're like me, we don't oftentimes uh, think of ourselves having that type of relationship with the sovereign God of the universe. Um, servants of the Almighty God, yes. Uh, children of the Heavenly Father, sure. But a close, intimate friend of God's? I mean, really? Us? I mean, that puts us in the company of some of those great Old Testament patriarchs, right? Like Abraham, who was called a friend of God. 
It puts us on equal footing with Moses, who, you know, was the one who spoke to God face to face. To be a friend of God, I mean, that's the highest possible relationship that we could have with God, isn't it? So why can Jesus call us his friends? I mean, really, what proof is there that Jesus has that type of relationship with you and me, right? Well, let me give you two that Jesus tells us about here in this passage. Proof number one that Jesus is our friend is that Jesus laid down his life for us. Look with me at uh, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, we have to remember that Jesus, in this passage here, is talking to his disciples there in that upper room the night before he goes to the cross, okay? Got to get that time frame in, in, in mind. And these disciples, they have no idea what he's talking about. Not yet. Not now. There's still a, a buzz. There's still a, this, this feeling of excitement uh, from the crowd that had greeted them a few days earlier as they entered into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. Um, and, and they are up in this upper room, and they are, what are they doing? They're busy celebrating a Passover feast. What an occasion. And then Jesus says, friends, I want to tell you, there is no greater demonstration of love than when a friend gives his life for you. I mean, put yourself there in that room just for, for a moment. Can't you see it? The disciples are nodding their heads, yet wondering, what, what's he talking about? I mean, they have no idea of the conspiracy that lays ahead. They don't know that in a few short hours that he will be taken captive in that garden and that he will be put on trial. They don't see the cross coming at all. But now... At this point, before everything happens, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, I'm your friend. Why? Because I'm going to lay down my life for you. Listen, when someone claims to be your friend, we use a similar test today, don't we? I mean, you ask, uh, uh, hey, uh, what have they done for me? We all ask that question. I mean, the question is a long-standing proof of uh, a true friendship, is it not? I mean, suppose you're driving your car out, you know, on a snowy night here in Minnesota, you know, January, February. Your car breaks down. It's not only snowing, but it is freezing outside. And you're not a AAA member, okay? Uh, it's 1 o'clock in the morning. Who can you call to come out and, and help you at that time Notice how quickly your brain will compute the friendships by this ancient standard, right? I mean, you go right through your list. Those you, you work with, your, your neighbors, uh, the roster of your children's soccer team, maybe even some people here in, in the church family. You, you think of all the acquaintances that you know of, and if you are fortunate, there are one or two close, intimate, stand-up-at-your-wedding type of friends that you might be able to call. In fact, they might be even on your favorites list on your cell phone, right? <laughs> and when you call them, 
and say, hey, my car's broken down. Would you mind? Uh, I hate to ask you this, but would you mind coming out and helping me? They say, hey, no sweat. <laughs> you know, glad to come out. I'll be right there. That's a friend, right? You know a friend by what he or she does for you. Jesus says, that's what friendship is, and that's how you know that I am your friend. I have given my life for you. Then Jesus gives us a second proof of his friendship. He has shared with us personal, um, intimate secrets. Look with me at verse 15 again. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. <laughs> Jesus says, guys, listen, I don't consider you servants, slaves, but I call you friends. Therefore, I am sharing some, some personal information with you. What the father has showed me, I have shown you. In those ancient days, slaves were uh, considered um, to be little more than objects. Um, and so masters, like, I guess kind of like employers with their employees today, masters certainly did not share their deepest thoughts or their personal information with their slaves or servants. But Jesus says, listen, we are more than slaves, more than servants. We are his friends because he has revealed his secrets to us. That's one of the things that you and I, we do with good friends, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you share personal secrets. Um, I mean, you take them into your confidence, right? If you get a hot tip on a stock, you run through the Rolodex of your mind and say, well, who should I call and tell about this, this tip? And the person you call is, well, <laughs> they considered a good friend. If you have been promoted in your job, who's the first person you want to share that exciting news with? <laughs> well, whoever it is, that, that's a person you would call your, one of your best friends. See, friendship is always marked by the sharing of intimacy. The same is true with God and with us. Jesus says to his disciples, listen, you are my friends because I have shared with you my personal information. I have told you what my father has shared with me about life and about death and about hell and about heaven and about relationships, about history, about the world. <laughs> I mean, Jesus poured it all out and told them what he had known, what he had learned from his father. And that is proof of his true friendship. What proof does Jesus give us that we are his friends? <laughs> Well, he's given us his life for us. He has shared his personal secrets with us. But I, I think we need to also flip this question a little bit. Because not only do we need to ask, what proof does Jesus give us that we are his friends? But we also need to ask, what proof can we give that um, Jesus is our friend? How do we show that we are Jesus' friends? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 14. Look with me. Look what he says here. You are my friends if you do what I command you. If we do what Jesus commands, we can be his friend. Now, doesn't that sound a bit <laughs> demanding? 
Um, like someone saying, hey, you can't be my friend unless you follow all of my rules, you know? Um, if you don't do all that, then I'm going to take my ball and I'm going to go home. <laughs> I mean, who would want a friend like that? But see, I don't think that's what Jesus was uh, saying here. I don't think that's what he was teaching. In fact, take a closer look at this passage. I want you to see it in its context. Remember, what we're talking about is a passage, a section of verses that come out of John chapter 15. Um, In John 15, this whole chapter is concerned with um, a believer's relationships. In fact, verses 1 through 11, it's concerned with uh, uh, our relationship with Christ. Uh, He is uh, the vine and we are the branches. We have to remain in him, he says. In verses 18 to 27, Jesus here deals with the believer's relationship with the world. And in our section, verses 12 through 17, Jesus deals with our relationship with one another, with each other. This is a a friendship passage. Jesus is not teaching obedience here. Now, don't misunderstand me. Um, uh, The Lord wants you and me to obey his commands, but here he is not talking about obedience. No, he's not making obedience the test of friendship. In fact, read with me verse 14 again. Look with me. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So let me ask you a question. What is it that Jesus commanded? Well, he told us back up in verse 12, didn't he? Look with me. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And just in case you missed it, he repeats himself down in verse 17. Look at the, these things I command you so that you will love one another. That's how you show friendship, Jesus says. You call yourself my friend, but when you love one another as I have loved you. Now, what does he mean by that? I mean, what's that look like? (laughs) Well, let me try to illustrate it this way. Suppose you're being given a tour, you know, over in St. Paul of the James J. Hill mansion by a a friend. Uh, Your friend's the, the caretaker. He's taking your tour through that mansion. And you see the, the well-manicured lawns and the, the two-story art gallery. And you're amazed by the, uh, the home's grand staircase and the three-story pipe organ that's there. Your friend takes you through all five floors of that amazing mansion with its 13 bathrooms and the 22 fireplaces and takes you into that 88-foot reception hall. And as you walk into that huge reception hall, there's one table in the middle of that hallway holding an alabaster vase imported from Egypt. The light is shining through that vase, and there's a single daffodil in that vase. And you say to your guide, man, I have never seen such a beautiful vase as that alabaster vase. Your guide looks at you and says, Uh, You like that vase? Well, take it. It's yours. I'm a good friend of the owner, and he'd want me to give it to you. Now, listen, I have to pause here because I have to rule out two terrible possibilities or my illustration is ruined, okay? (laughs) 
Uh, first, I have to rule out the possibility that your friend has worked at the mansion so long that he's become a little bit, you know, kind of confused. Um, like somebody at Wells Fargo who begins to think that all that money is theirs. <laughs> I mean, that would ruin my illustration if he were trying to give away something that he has no right to give. Let me give you a, a second thing we need to rule out, and that's the possibility that your friend is a thief <laughs> and, and they're just using you to sneak out the alabaster vase. Um, uh, that also ruins uh, the illustration, okay? But listen, if you can rule out those two possibilities, what has your friend just proved to you when he gives you that vase? He's proved to you that he's a very good friend of the owner, hasn't he? That's what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is saying, listen, I'll tell you how to show that you're my friend. Give away the best treasure in my house, which is my love. That's the command that Jesus is giving to us. We are to give away Jesus' love to each other. And let me be clear about this. This is a command. <laughs> I mean, Jesus here... He, it's given to us in an imperative mood, which means that there's, this is not an option for us if we call ourselves Christ followers, not if we call ourselves Christians. It's not something we only do when we feel like it or when it's easy for us to do. If we are a friend of Jesus, if we want to prove that we are very good friends to the owner of, of everything, then the owner himself is telling us the way to do that is by giving away his best treasure, his agape love to one another. She so said, well, how do we do that? How do we deliberately give Jesus' love away, his agape love to each other? Well, I think there's a lot of passages we could go to, but I want to take us to one of the key passages, I think, and that's out of 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, turn with me, Bibles, to 1 Corinthians 13, would you? I think we're all pretty familiar with this uh, passage because this chapter is often used in wedding ceremonies. You know, couples love to use it because of its lofty sentiments and uh, its high-quality literature, which is fine. That's okay. But I got to tell you that that's not the original intent. Originally, these verses were applied to the local church community the very real body of believers there in Corinth. It was Paul's application, I think, of Jesus' command that we just read, to love each other as he has loved us. Look with me, starting in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. <laughs> Aren't you overwhelmed when you read those four verses? I am. When you read those verses, you discover that Paul uses 15 phrases to describe Jesus' agape love. And I want to highlight, because we, we don't have time to do all of them, but just three of them this morning that I think all of us can work on. First one is patience. Right there at the very beginning, love is patience. See, one of the ways for us to give away Jesus' love to 
each other is to be patient with each other. Literally, the word that Paul uses here means long-tempered or far from wrath and anger. It's a word that was used almost exclusively with people, not with circumstances. See, love's patience is the ability to be inconvenienced or ability to be taken advantage of by a person over and over and over again and yet not get upset or angry. (laughs) Now, I have to admit, I mean, this can be quite challenging. After all, most of us are impatient with patience, right? (laughs) But this kind of love, patient love is possible because it comes from God. It's God's love for us. It's his patience and long-suffering that allows people, uh, time for people to repent and, and to be saved. It's a type of love, loving patience that Jesus demonstrated there on the cross when he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. God, see, is, is patient with us, isn't he? I mean, imagine confessing your sins. God says, wait, 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 wait. Um, which sins do you, do you have in mind? And when you begin to spell them out, God says, well, wait, 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 wait. You were here just three days ago confessing those same sins. In fact, in fact you were here just um, uh, three times last week saying the same thing. So I'm sorry. I, time has run out. <laughs> I'm not going to forgive you. Isn't it amazing God doesn't do that? He doesn't deal with us according to our sins or reward us according to our iniquities. No, he's he's patient with us. (laughs) He works with us. But that's the nature of the God who gave us his agape love. God is patient with us and his love inspires us and calls us to be patient with each other, doesn't it? So you say, well, pastor, how do you do that? Well, one suggestion is by taking seriously the Christian doctrine that we're all sinners. <laughs> I mean, we all mess up. In fact, whenever we think that we have sin licked, it, it, it comes right back, doesn't it? We struggle with it, and other people struggle with it. So we need to be patient with them. We need to be willing to, to forgive them. We're patient with each other because the work that God does in them doesn't happen just overnight. That's why when you get around exasperating people, it's okay for you to say, God, I need your patience. Let's look at another one from the list. Look with me at the end of verse five. Look what he says here. It's not irritable or resentful. Love is not resentful. Um, I love this one. Uh, Paul's word here is an accountant's word, a, a bookkeeper's word. That's why the NIV, if you have the NIV translation, it reads, love keeps no record of wrongs. When a bookkeeper puts something into the book, he's keeping an account of it in order to make sure it's paid, right? So when Paul says love does not keep account of evil, he means that we don't even mark it down, <laughs> When evil is done to us, we don't keep it in the books. I don't know if if you're like this, but when I go out to a restaurant, you know, we go out to a restaurant for a meal, um, you know, after I pay for the meal, I take the receipt and I 
I, I stuff it, you know, in my wallet. My wallet is filled, stuffed with uh, receipts. You know, we tend to do that same type of thing after someone hurts us, don't we? We take that hurt, we take that bad remark, that terrible thing done to us, and we stuff it into our wallet of memories. And pretty soon our wallet is full of those hurts until we need those receipts. And, and then we pull out our wallets and we dig through those old receipts until we find the one that we're looking for, and then we pull it out and we wave it in that person's face. Listen, in your lifetime, you'll have opportunity after opportunity to suffer evil. We live in a fallen world in the midst of a depraved society. You're depraved, and the person next to you is depraved. And people, including Christians, do all kinds of strange and terrible things. If it hasn't happened already, people will lie to you. Somebody that you trusted will gossip about you. A mother-in-law might interfere in your, in your marriage. A roommate or spouse might say something in anger that cuts so deep that the wound, it seems like it will never heal. In fact, a pastor might even disappoint you. <laughs> All of us have opportunities to either cherish hatred or to extend love to one another. And Paul says that when someone hurts you, if you're really giving away Jesus' love, you won't keep an account of evil. Let's look at a third way. And Jesus says that we can give away Jesus' love to each other. Um, down in verse 7, I love this. Love bears all things, believes all things. Um, uh, in other words, uh, trusts all things. It believes all things, trusts all things. Um, you know, I'm enough of a, of a cynic um, to think that if you take that phrase at face value, um, you're going to be in all kinds of trouble, right? Um, I mean, if you trust everybody you meet, uh, I got to tell you, there's going to be a long line of people at your front door willing to sell you the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> but listen, when Paul talks about this kind of love, he's not talking about the type of love that depends on what resides in the person you're dealing with. No, what he's talking about is what resides in you. More importantly, as a Christian, it has to do with how we see other people in light of God's working in their lives. Um, think about it. Uh, uh, Paul treated the Corinthian church this way, right? This church in Corinth, uh, you read that book of Corinthians, and it was divided. They were angry enough with each other to take uh, each other to, to court. I mean, many of them flirted with idolatry. You think, Paul, Paul, look, don't trust these people. It's a bad crowd. Don't believe in them. But Paul did trust them. He did believe in them in a way. I mean, if you go back to the very beginning of this letter, Paul basically says to this church, hey, listen, the very beginning, he says, I believe in you. He believes that God was working in their lives and that God would keep working until they stood before Jesus Christ. That perspective helps, doesn't it? When you look at your brother or sister who's not quite there yet. Realize that God's not finished with them. 
like a road with, with a detour. They have a rough spot or two. But God's moving them to be the kind of people that he wants them to, to be, and you can treat them that way. C.S. Lewis has a passage in his essay, The Weight of Glory. I want to weekly paraphrase. <laughs> he says that there are no ordinary Christians. These people with whom you eat, with whom you pray, with whom you play, <laughs> these folks that are in your small group or in your community group, none are ordinary Christians. I mean, take the person who irritates you the most, the person who's always, I don't know, talking loudly or, or interrupting or has bad manners. Lewis says that if you could see that person, what that person would be like when God gets through with them, you'd be tempted to worship them. Family, can I tell you, there are no ordinary Christians here at First Free. Those brothers and sisters in Christ who are sitting all around you, you know, this morning are people who are made to be with God for eternity. They're Christ followers. They're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. One way for us to give way Jesus' love here at First Free is to continually work on developing a spirit of mutual trust. Believe that God is doing a work in each person's life that will ultimately be magnificent, amazing. <laughs> and then you can respond to them that way. You can trust what God's doing in them. Listen, when we give away Jesus' love to each other, we are proving our friendship with God. And not only to God, not only to ourselves, but also to the world around us. Do you realize that? John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. As we've said this whole series, we are better together. Truly, we are better together. So let me ask you, simply this, where do you practice loving other believers? Where do you give Christ's love away? Where is it? Where are you doing that? Where do you show patience? Where are you extending love and, and forgiveness? Where is it that you're encouraging others and trusting God to be working in them? Where's that taking place? Now listen, this might seem pretty obvious, but I gotta tell you, you cannot follow Jesus' command to love one another by yourself. <laughs> I mean, the only place I know that you can prove your friendship with God is with others in community. And that's the power of a small group. There's no better place to practice loving others than in a small group. Though we're part of a, a great company, we are meant to live in little platoons, small enough to know each other, small enough to give Jesus' love to one another. And when you do that, you'll be demonstrating your intimate friendship with God. Friends, that's the way of the kingdom of God. There it is. 
One evening, just before the actress Mary Martin was to go on stage in South Pacific, she was handed a note. The note was from Oscar Hammerstein, who at that moment was on his deathbed. The note said, Dear Mary, a bell's not a bell till you ring it. A song's not a song until you sing it. Love in your heart is not put there to stay. Love isn't love till you give it away. Mary Martin on that night gave one of the greatest performances of her career, telling friends, tonight I gave my love away. Oscar Hammerstein probably didn't realize how scripturally sound his words were. Yet that's exactly what Jesus is telling us today. This is my commandment, he says, that you love one another as I have loved you. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for your love, first of all. Because of your love for us, we are able not only have example, but to have the the power through your Holy Spirit to love one another. God, might you continue to work in us. Might you continue to work in this church family that as we connect and reconnect and, and as we grow together, God, that we might demonstrate your love. Might that prove our friendship with you. Your son's precious name, we pray this. Amen.